Psalm 48 praises God for delivering Jerusalem from Israel's enemies. The sons of Korah, who wrote this song, noted that Jerusalem is a great city because God is great and dwells within the city amidst his people. Likely this song of joyful deliverance was written to be sung by the worshipers as they ascended into the city to worship God during the feast. As Christians read Psalm 48, we need to look towards the future fulfillment of this psalm. The eschatological aspect of this psalm looks forward to the New Jerusalem. Like this Jerusalem, New Jerusalem will be a secured city. However, it will only be inhabited by those who have been joyfully delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. In that future kingdom, all the people of God will come to the temple in New Jerusalem and worship King Jesus. Perhaps as they come to worship, they too will sing this song of joyful deliverance. Psalm 48, a song of joyful deliverance. We're going to begin with verse 1 through 3 and look at the glory of Zion. In verses 4 to 8, the gathering at Zion. In verses 9 to 11, the gladness in Zion. And then finally, 12 to 14, the gratification over Zion. So let's begin in verses 1 through 3, the glory of Zion. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king, God in her palaces, has made himself known as a stronghold. Now the call to worship here tells us who is to be worshipped and where he is to be worshipped. Who is worshipped? The Lord, Yahweh who is to be praised because he is great. Now, the adjective great, when it's applied to God in the Old Testament, means that he is great in works, Deuteronomy eleven seven. It means that his glory is great, Psalm 21, verse 5. It also is applied to his name. His name is great, Jeremiah 10, 6. His mercy is great, 1 Kings 3, 6. His goodness is great, Nehemiah 9, 25. His compassion is great. Isaiah 54, 7 to 8. And because God is so great, He does great things. And so we sing that wonderful hymn, How Great Thou Art. Great praise is appropriate because He is a great God. He is to be greatly praised, the psalm tells us. And verse 1 also tells us not only who to worship, but where God is to be worshipped. He's to be praised in His city, in His holy mountain. And the name of that city is none other than Zion, which we know is another name for Jerusalem. And notice this mountain is holy. It is separated. Why is it holy? Why is it separated? Because it's been set apart for God. The holy God dwells in that mountain. Now the rest of this psalm is a meditation on the greatness of Zion. So verse 1 establishes the greatness of God. Now the rest of the psalm is going to establish the greatness of the city. And the city is great because God is great and God dwells there. Zion is beautiful in elevation. Literally it is the high place. It is the place where the transcendent God meets man. It also brings joy to the whole earth. Now joy means exaltation or rejoicing. Praise. The whole earth is going to praise. because, and, and In other words, when we think about this, we get the idea that uh, the blessing of Zion is going to be to all people. The whole earth is going to someday be blessed 
because of Jerusalem. Not now, not currently, but there will be a day in which that will come. There's a similar thought in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 to 4, where it says the mountains of the Lord's house are exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And then it goes on to say the law will go out from Zion and peace will come to the earth. Now that's a prophecy of the millennial kingdom. Okay? So, just to keep everybody in sync in our eschatological time frame, next event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church, phase one of the second coming. After the rapture of the church is the seven-year tribulation. At the end of that seven-year tribulation, we have phase two of the second coming, which is the return of Christ. At the return, he lands here on planet Earth. Um, he makes war with the Antichrist. He casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into hell. He casts Satan, binds him for a thousand years. He's cast into a pit, into an abyss. Uh, then uh, he establishes his kingdom on Earth. All the people of the earth that are still alive after the end of tribulation are gathered together. The righteous enter into the kingdom. The unrighteous are cast alive into hell. Now, once he establishes his kingdom, he regathers all the living Jews into who are righteous, who are believers, into a new nation of Israel. And then any Gentiles that are alive and remain who have been deemed righteous will make up all the new Gentile nations. The, all the world is going to have to come to Jerusalem at least three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and Atonement. They're going to come and worship the King, Jesus Christ, there in Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 to 4 prophesies. And when they come to Jerusalem, they will be taught the law, the Torah, and that is what they will live by. And it will produce what? Bless, or it will produce praise. The nations, as they come to worship the king in Jerusalem and be taught the law by the king in Jerusalem, will leave rejoicing. Notice that it also says here that Zion is also on the sides of the north. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we go into the Hebrew, it, it could be better rendered as the heights of Zaphon. Now, the Hebrew word there, uh, Zaphon or Zaphon, can literally be translated as north. But here's what's interesting. Zaphon is the mythological name for the mountain of the gods. And what the psalmist is saying here is that when it says Zion is on the sides of the north or the heights of Savan, Safan, it means this. We can put translate this way. Zion, i.e. Jerusalem, has displaced the ancient mountain of the gods. This ancient pagan idea has been replaced because the true Zaphon, the true mountain of God, is Zion. Zion is the true north. He is the true, or it is the true Zaphon where the true God dwells. And so Zion is the city of a great king. No earthly king, not David, not Solomon, not any earthly king, makes Jerusalem great. Only great because God himself is there. God is in her palaces. He is her refuge. Now that word palaces can be rendered as citadel or stronghold, which better, is, better parallels the idea of refuge. Literally, God is Zion's or Jerusalem's fortification and defense. Now Zion is exalted, blessing the earth. It is the dwelling place of God. It is the fortress of the great king God. And the presence and the power of God are found there in Jerusalem. 
Now let us move on to verses 4 through 8. The gathering at Zion. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it, then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. In the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Zelah. Now while Zion is beautiful to the righteous ones, to the believers, it will be terrible. For the unbeliever. And so the rulers of the nations come and see it. Now this is describing a past event, but there's also a future prophetical aspect to this. As the kings assembled, they passed by together. In other words, in ancient Israel, there was a time when the Gentile nations gathered and they came to attack the city. But when they saw the city, when they saw Zion, they were amazed, literally terrified, and they fled in alarm. They fled away. Now, was it the city? No. It was the God of the city. It was the presence of Yahweh. And their astonished turned to, terif- to being terrified. They, they fled. Now, there's two metaphors that document this terror. They feel the panic and anguish, if you will, as of a woman in childbirth. They also experience the dread of sailors who see the east wind that breaks up the ships of Tarshish. Now, where is Tarshish? Do not confuse this with Tarsus in the New Testament. Tarshish is a Phoenician city. Okay, now, the Phoenicians were seafaring people. They migrated all around the Mediterranean seaboard. Tarshish is a city in Spain, an ancient city in Spain, that uh, was originally a Phoenician city. So here we have in Psalm a mention of a city in Spain. And so these sailors would, would uh, uh, leave the Mediterranean coast of what eventually became the land of Israel. At the time it was under Phoenician rule. And they made their way across the Mediterranean, eventually coming up to the land of Spain. The problem was an east wind would often blow, and uh, any ships caught in that east wind would be dashed against the rocks. And so these sailors dreaded that east wind. Well, when these kings saw the presence at Mount Zion, at the city of Jerusalem, they saw the presence of God, they dreaded it. They feared it. They knew this could be our end. Now, that's how the unbeliever sees the city. But when the children of God approach the city of Jerusalem, they come rejoicing. They come singing praise because they're going to go up to worship God. And so in verses 4 through 7, we see the believers' courage and confidence, whereas we saw the unbelievers fear and flee. You know, in in much the same respect, we see this in the New Testament when Jesus came. The common people heard him gladly. The religious leaders, however, wanted to forsake him. Even today... Christ is beautiful. His teachings are beautiful to the church. But to those whose minds are darkened, they don't want to hear it. They want to flee from it. They want no parts of it. For believers, the psalm goes on to say, what was once merely heard has now been seen. Faith has turned to sight. The city of the Lord of hosts, literally the city of of, of of the God who marshals angels to his, as, as, as his military, 
The city of our God has been established forever. The word established means that it's been firmly fixed, it's been secured, it's certain forever. There's always going to be a Jerusalem. As God has said there would be. Everything else can pass away, but Zion will stand. She'll be held by the eternal God. John writes in Revelation 22, verse 5, of the new Jerusalem. There's always going to be a Jerusalem. Now, verses 9 through 11 gives us the gladness in Zion. The gladness in Zion. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple, as is your name, O God. So is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. The psalmist turns from meditation to prayer. He's addressing God directly. His mind is filled with God's loving kindness, God's chesed, God's mercy. His mind is not only filled with God's mercy, but it's filled with God's name. And it's also filled with God's righteousness. And it's filled with God's judgment. His mind is wholly fixated on God. And having now entered the temple, he joins the other worshipers who are also thinking or imagining in their minds Yahweh's loving kindness, Yahweh's name, Yahweh's righteousness, Yahweh's judgment. How often and how much time do we actually spend in, when we're in prayer meditating on God's mercy, meditating on God's names, meditating on His righteousness, meditating on His judgments? Here, prayers are prayed, sacrifices are offered, hymns are sung, the Ark of the Covenant rests in that most holy place with its mercy seat, its angelic guards, and the tablets of the law housed within it. And as they see all of this, they are driven to what? Meditate on who God is and what He's done. They meditate on His name. That word name. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. What is the greatness of God's name? A name describes his character, describes who he is, it describes what he's done. Remember in Genesis 12, when he called Abraham, he said, I'm going to, through you, I will bless the nations. And indeed, that's what God does. He will bless the nations. Do you meditate on his name? Do you meditate on his character? Do you meditate on how he has blessed you? Then he thoughts that his thought turns not only to his loving kindness and his righteousness, but also to his righteousness. His right hand is full of righteousness. God's not capricious. He acts according to his promises and his commands that he's laid out for us. God is true and straight in all of his dealings. There's no shadow. There's no wiggle room. There's no weaseling with God. The daughters of Judah are to rejoice and be glad because of your judgments. God's judgment is his just decisions based on his righteous acts against Israel's enemies, against our enemies. And I've, I, I, it's unique because as, as the psalmist reflects and thinks on God's character, it in turn becomes a call for worship. I would challenge you that when you tap into your memory of who God is and what he has done for you, that it will make you, it will prepare you to praise him, to worship him. Look at verse 12 to 14 as we close. The gratification over Zion. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces. So Why? so that you may tell it to the next generation, for such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. 
This is a call for a procession to march around the city of Jerusalem. Welcome back all around her. And as the worshippers walk there to what? Count the towers on the wall. Mark the bulwarks. Consider the palaces or the citadels, the strongholds. The purpose of this procession is to see how strong and well-defined Jerusalem is. And remember, its reason it's strong, the reason it's secure, the reason it's defended, is because God is her true refuge. Now, the purpose of surveying the city is not merely to strengthen the faith of the pilgrims, but it's so that they can tell the next generation, the generation following. They are responsible for educating their children in the faith. They're to give a witness for what they say. And friends, that is our responsibility. That's your responsibility. It is your responsibility, believer, to make sure that you are giving a witness that you are educating your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephew, whoever, that you're educating them in the faith. That you're giving them a testimony of what you have seen and what you have heard. And how your faith has been strengthened, what God has done for you. Well, they don't want to hear it. I don't care. The Bible doesn't care. It's not a case of whether they want to hear it or not. It's a responsibility that we have in spite of how they might feel. This goes back to something we've talked about before, not in our uh, devotions through the Psalms, but in uh, uh, various other uh, sermons, this idea of consequentialism. If the Bible clearly commands us that we are to testify to the next generation of what God has done or of who God is, and we don't do it, and, 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 and we say, well, I can't do it because... They don't want to listen. That's consequentialism. We're biblicists. We have a responsibility biblically, regardless of their reaction. We have a responsibility to obey, thus saith the Lord. You leave the consequence with God. God's made it very clear what we're to do. The testimony to their children, the point of the psalm, is summarized in verse 14. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. We can put it this way. This God is our God. He's the great Lord. He's the great King. He's the Lord of hosts. He's loving, righteous, just. He's our God. He's my God. And He's going to guide us. He'll guide us all the way till the day He calls us home. He'll guide us to the end of our lives. He's going to be faithful to us to the end. Friend, are you going to be faithful to Him to the end? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this song of joyful deliverance. Lord, as we have had the moment here to go back and see the old city of Jerusalem, that, Father, how you have sustained this city down through the generations, how you have been its, its citadel, its bulwark, its refuge. Father, it has been a testimony of your presence. Father, it has been a testimony down through the generations of who you are and what you have done. And, Father, as we look back at it, we can rejoice. For, Lord, it was at the city of Jerusalem where our Savior died. It was at that city of Jerusalem where our Savior rose. It is at that city of Jerusalem where our Savior ascended into high. And, Father, we look forward to that great and glorious day when the Savior returns. We look forward to that new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven. Father, Lord, we ask that you might give us a song of rejoicing. As those pilgrims of old rejoiced in their deliverance, I pray that, Lord, as we look ahead to that 
uh, to inhabiting that new Jerusalem that, Lord, we might even now begin to sing a song of joyful deliverance. The Father God, that we might meditate on your name, on your character, on, on your judgment or justice, on your righteousness, on, on your presence, on your mercy. And Father, in meditating on those things, Lord, help us, prepare us to give you praise. Father, with all that you've done for us, we should not lack to praise you. As well, Father, I ask that you would enable us to testify as to what you have done and who you are to the next generation. That, Father, help us to be obedient despite the consequences that we may face. That, Lord, if you tell us this is what we are to do, that, Lord, we would go forth and do it. Help us to that end, we pray. In your Son's precious and holy name, amen.